Well, good morning, church. So good to be back amongst the saints. Uh, I have missed you all so much. Um, but thank you all so much for your prayers and support and comfort. Um, as many of you know, I had to go uh, stay with my sister for a little while. And um, she was going through some health issues. And so praise be to God, she is doing 100% better. Um, again, thank you for your prayers and just all the love and the encouragement that came. That was a great help. But boy, did I miss you all. So it is, it is great to be back. It is great to be back into the house of the Lord. And it is also great just to get a chance to uh, get together, worship together. And in my case, to deliver God's word one more time as he gives grace. So I just say, amen, amen. Uh, today we're going to be looking at a passage coming out of, if you have your Bibles or if you have your applications um, at home, we'll be coming out of the second epistle of John. And so while you make your way there, um, just uh, if you're having a trouble finding it, it's going to be in the back of your Bible. If you go to Revelation right at the end, uh, it should only be a few pages in front of Revelation. You'll see John's um, epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and then Revelation. So, um, so I'll be coming out of that text today. So would you join me right now for just a quick prayer as we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for being able to convene in this house. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for, Lord, what you have reminded us in Christ. And so now, Father, as the prayers have been spoken, as our hearts have been lifted to you and our eyes, mind, and heart is attentive to your word, now, Lord, use me so that, Father, your word would rest upon our hearts and yield the good harvest that you have intended. We praise you for that and we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So imagine, if you will, or some of you may have already understood or seen things like this, but a small business gets started. It begins to grow. It is just a small company. It begins to get orders in. Their computer systems are up and functioning. And one day, as the company is just growing and getting everything ordered, things are swimming, things are popping along, one of the business analysts notices an email from the president. He says, oh, I haven't talked to him in a little bit, president of the company, so let me see what this is. And in that email, it says, please click here to download an urgent message from the CEO. And him being the analyst and just like everything is happening so fast, he simply clicks on that and the rest of the business changes for the next 27 days. He has been the victim of a phishing scam. He has been infiltrated by one of the viruses on the internet. In fact, one of the one of the attacks that comes across 
is this effort by a programmer or an entity in order to disguise itself as something legitimate, but in fact is something deceptive. Phishing and social engineering is quoted, usually conducted via email. It's an attack masked as a legitimate email from trusted entities such as banks, email providers, tricking, deceiving the email recipient into disclosing confidential information or downloading malware by clicking a hyperlink message. It renders systems inoperable, sometimes holding companies hostage, and it can take quite a time trying to get them off your system. They are not your pleasant day. But the thing that companies do, and a lot of you have, some of you may have even been infected by these um, phishing attacks. But one of the best ways of prevention, other than cleaning your system and putting up the safeguards and everything, number one way in which to help prevent that is education. It's to use training and awareness on how to recognize these type of false advertisements and false items that come to you so that you will not be deceived by them and so that you will be able to properly handle your mail and properly go about your business. That's in the cyber world. What about in our world today? What about in the world 2,000 years ago? Now, if you take in mind, Christianity is exploding on the scene at the turn of the century. The church is going through a remarkable growth period. And the gospel is spreading in the first century church like wildfire. Thousands are coming to Christ. The gospel is going out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And with it, churches are going everywhere. And part of the reason is because the hospitality also, those who have been converted, those who have come to know Christ, have new hearts. And so they have learned how to care for one another and how to spread this infectious hospitality and this love and this care. And so churches begin spreading further and further. And along with people responding to that hospitality and care are also those who are looking to take advantage. Those who are deceivers, those who would come into that care acting as if they are there for good, but in fact are there to do harm. And the way that we get today the way that we handle viruses was the same way that the apostles and the saints dealt with those issues. Educate. They had to give them proper discernment to be able to understand who to receive in their home and who not to. How to protect the unity of the church and affirm the teaching of God's word and his truth. The second epistle of John 
consists of one of those letters and one of those calls by an apostle to a church to prepare them and fortify them for this very thing was going on during the time of John. And so today we're going to consider looking at this background and looking at what should we glean from this lesson because there are, there, there are those who are out there that are trying to even deceive us today. Those who would try to come into our midst and cloud or make as if they are preaching a true gospel, but in fact are preaching a deceptive gospel. And so today, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to, again, you may be there now, John chapter 1, first, I'm sorry, 2 John. There's only one chapter in this. And so I will read the whole book, the whole epistle, and we're going to be covering um, several of those verses. So let's start again in 2 John, starting in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments, that is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring the teaching, this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greets you. Most scholars agree that John wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus around 85 to 90 A.D. We know that the church had been founded 30 years earlier by the Apostle Paul, and both Paul and Timothy served as pastors at that church. We knew earlier from John's own epistle earlier to this church that false teachers had arisen in the church who claimed to have a deeper knowledge of the things of God. 
And they had claimed to have a secret knowing of Christ. But in reality, they denied the bodily incarnation of Jesus Christ. They denied his deity. They taught many other heretical teachings. That's a way of saying they taught things that were not in the Bible, nor would the Bible agree with, nor would Christ agree with. Their opinions and their doctrines did not line up with the teachings of the church. And their motive may have been to take some elements of different religions and pull them together so that they could make up a religion that they felt comfortable with because they could not reconcile the things of an infinite, almighty God. They brought God to their standard. And so as John writes to this church, when godly leaders have to confront error, these men left the church. And from their own, they took people with them. John said in his first epistle, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued in us. And the church split and relationships were fractured and severed. People were confused and hurt. Rumors and false allegations circulated. So there was a need for godly leaders to bring the church back to the basics of faith. That's part of what we do here. Part of what we read with the Nicene Creed was bringing us back to the basics and the elements of what do we believe? Who do we know Christ to be according to the Scriptures? And so John probably wrote this short letter in order to briefly follow up from his earlier letter and to prepare them for a visit where he could speak much more on this. He's writing to care for a church that's facing divisive forces. Once again, we find ourselves understanding what it means to have dividing elements vie for our membership and for our church. It isn't new. It was going on in the first century church. It goes on today. What do we do when we have disputable matters that are dividing us and threatens to confuse or hurt or separate us? Or when we believe essential matters of the faith are being threatened in our church today. Things on the deity of Christ, things that are at the core of our faith. Without them, our faith doesn't exist. What do we do when those are threatened? What is our defense against biblical fishing attacks that we call heresies? Well, today, church, we are going to look at what John helped that church in Ephesus deal with through this letter. And he does it by way of reminder and encouragement. And this week we're going to look at those reminders and encourages that encouragement. Um, and he's also giving them caution. And this week we will not cover the caution areas, but we're going to hit the first part of that where John 
if you're taking notes, he reminds them first that they are covered in the knowledge of truth. To defend them and to keep them united, John reminds them that they are covered in the knowledge of truth. Every church needs to be strong in the knowledge of truth so that the members can avoid destructive heresies. They need to be strong in loving relationships. They need to be holy and obedient in their conduct. Without these things, the church is more susceptible to subtle deception of the enemy. John understood this. And so John starts his letter in verses 1 and 2. We read this poignant opening. Listen to what John says. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Did you hear anything repeated in that? John has a penchant for this word truth. It's going to come up again. But John wants to first address this church off the basis of truth. Quickly, we know that this letter comes from the elder. That's a way that John refers to himself. Similarly to the same way in his gospel, he is the beloved one. It's not a term of boasting. It's actually a humility. John would not mention his name. He wanted the forefront to be on Christ. John refers even in this way as a positional elder in the church, of this church, but more importantly as an elderly saint that is caring pastorally for his church. Affectionately, he is known as the elder and he writes this to the elect lady and her children. Now, many have tried to determine who is the elect lady and her children. Scholars land on several main thoughts. Some believe it takes um, effect and it literally means that this is for a woman and her children. They believe that when you translate the lady and her children, that word ends up being um, a phrase, or at least they believe a name, called Electa the Lady or Chosen Kyria. Many believe then that this is a woman and this is the church that meets at her home or this is to her children at her home. And so this is written to an individual. Others believe that it's more figurative and that it's referencing a local church and its members. The understanding that the elect lady and her children are similar to at the end of the verse, John says, and the elect sister greets you as well. When we get to verse 13, it says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So it's not a lady to a lady, but it's actually a figurative reference to a church. And I think the support for this seems to be more compelling in the document itself because of the plural nature that John refers to in there. 
and as well as others that have looked and said that much of what John was writing to had to deal more with the church and other supporting arguments for that, that John was actually referencing the lady, even in a cryptic kind of, of, of format, so that in case this letter was to fall into the wrong hands, that there would be an understanding of who this was for, or that it would protect folks. And so I think we lean more towards it is to the church. And of course, church is met in the home. And so it was the members of the church, and John is writing to them. Now, the crucial issue in John is the truth. Verse 1 and 2, we see this, that truth is mentioned four times in this salutation. Three times right away. He says, whom I love in the truth. He loves the church in the truth. He says, also who know the truth. But I also know you says, I love the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. John identifies that his love for them is in the truth. It's not an emotional love. It's not a, a love that is, is, is a psychological in sense. It is a love that is born of his being and of his relationship. It is on truth and knowledge, the fellowship of knowledge doesn't only love the truth and love those who know the truth, but he actually says you yourselves have the truth. He says this is a truth that abides in us forever. John is talking about a relationship. That which abides in us, we know, is the Holy Spirit. That which abides in us is the Spirit who's been given us the spirit and the nature of Christ in us. And so the fellowship that not only loves truth, knows truth, but it values truth. And this truth is summarized in Jesus Christ and his gospel. Now, of course, that leads us to, but John, what is the truth? What does he mean by truth? the truth. Well, he doesn't leave us to guess. He goes right on into verse 3, and he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. It's not so much of a prayer because he says, will be with us. He's actually giving up a prediction. He's talking about what will cover you and what will be with you. He mentions grace, that unmerited favor that God places on them. Those are comfort words. He then talks about mercy, the compassion that helps a guilty. That's where God is not giving us what we deserve. His mercy covers us from his wrath that we deserve, but gives grace that which we don't deserve, and the peace which we desperately need. John's talking about the peace that comes because, as Pastor Zach mentioned, and it stuck with me 
a few weeks ago. The greatest peace we need is the fact that God's wrath has a crosshair directly centered on you. It's on me. Now, if I know that a sharpshooter has their crosshair targeted on me and they never miss, I don't have peace. I have a lot of anxiety. I have worry. I have guilt. I have all of this going on in me. I need that off of me. But the peace God gives is that his wrath has been turned away. The crosshair is removed and they were pointed at his son. He took what was intended for me. And in him taking that, I now have peace because I've accepted his payment and his substitutionary sacrifice and he has given us confidence that in, in doing so, God's wrath no longer is pointed at me, but his love, his grace, his mercy. That gives me peace. I've been reconciled. I'm at one with God. Amen. The truth that John's talking about is the ground of our fellowship. It's timeless, it's dateless, and it's unchangeable because that truth is rooted in Christ. He is clear about this. The comforting words of him saying, will be with us, is a way of reassuring them that God will not abandon them in spite of those who might say otherwise the truth of God in Christ with us will not abandon us. He goes on to help them understand a clarity with who Christ is. Normally he would say that the blessings from Christ Jesus and from the Father, but notice he says the Son of the Father. By equating Jesus as the Son of the Father, it directly opposes those who would say Jesus is not God. For only God begets God. The God, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are one. And John has just made them all together God, helping them once again know the reassurance that their faith is not false and that their faith is valid and it's rooted in Christ, the Son of God. And so he gives them this assurance and he gives them then this understanding. They have been covered in truth. They have been covered with a relationship that's firmly rooted in Christ Jesus. And the question today for us is, have we received the grace, the mercy, and the peace that only comes from God? God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Is our experience that we can appropriate and that we see God as being with us during these times of conflict, times of trouble? Is God our God? Do we come to Him with such boldness as children? 
who can seek him in this regard, in this way. Church, that's the areas that we're battering against them. And sometimes if we're truthful, that's what sometimes is at the core of our problem. We're wrestling with the belief in that. How do I appropriate that? How do I live that out? And John is giving us this blessed assurance that this is the truth that should secure your soul and your heart. But he moves on. He says that that is the covering that you've been covered in the knowledge of truth. But that's not the only area that John wants to remind them. He says, not only have you been called to be covered into the knowledge, not only have you been covered in the knowledge of truth, but you've also been called to walk in truth. That is the second point. You've also been called to walk in truth. John says in verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. We have to understand John is obviously concerned about truth. As I said, this is now the fourth time that John is bringing out. I'm sorry, this is now the fifth reference to um, walking in the truth. John accepts the concept of truth centers on the person of Jesus Christ. Heretics were deceiving people about Christ. They either said that he was not a real human, did not have a real human body, and that he was not God. Again, their answer to Christ was that somehow, in order to make it right, because they couldn't justify God coming in the flesh, because they thought the flesh was evil, then they made a calculation. If the flesh is evil and Jesus came in the flesh, then that would make Jesus evil and God evil and God can't be evil, so Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And they proposed that what happened was Jesus came and the Spirit descended on Jesus at the baptism, but went back before the cross. So that the Christ came and left and is back at the Father, but Jesus, who died on the cross, was not fully God. And so this was the teaching that was going on. And John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. John recognized if we don't have a bodily Christ, if we don't have God as fully man and fully God, then he couldn't have died for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness for sin. We are still dead in our trespasses. That's why he had to take flesh and blood in order to die. Romans 3, 24, 26 says, Redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This 
was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the word affirms Jesus had to be fully God, fully man, in order to cover and be available. Some blood had to be shed. Death had to be as a result of sin, but could not be by one who had sinned. Jesus didn't. But he had to be God because he had to be the one who was able to rise again, to overcome death. To conquer the enemy. Only God could do that. Therefore, Jesus is fully man to take our sins and fully God to redeem us. This is the truth that they've been called to walk in. Christianity is not based on religious speculation or philosophy but rather upon the revelation of God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The apostles spent years, three years, traveling with Jesus, testifying to his miracles, his death, his resurrection. And the church of Jesus Christ is therefore a community of those who have come to know this truth through their teaching. John personified, personifies truth with the reference to Jesus himself who claimed to be the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth, the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. John says that truth then abides with us forever. This affirmation by the New Testament is centered on the Old and the New Covenants, the Old and the New Testaments, affirmation of Christ. Even Jesus identified all of the Old Testament was pointing and pointing the way to him. It spoke of him. It is about him. And the New confirms that he came, he fulfilled the promises of God, the relationship of God, he was crucified for our sins unjustly, but he rose again. That is what the scriptures teach us. That is the truth that we live by. That is the truth that we walk by. To know him personally is to be then in the truth. That is what John is referencing. It's not how much knowledge we amass. It's how much Savior we accept. God is giving us an opportunity to be in a relationship with Him, to personally know Him through and to know this truth by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To be saved, you simply must recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. Trust in Him and he will save you. If you're here today or if you're online and you do not understand this central truth, I don't have to be a theologian. I don't have to have studied scriptures forever. 
Hearing the gospel is the good news that what I just said, Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect human life and he gave his life for us. He went to the cross. He died and shed his blood. He was buried and on the third day he rose again. And he was lifted. He ascended to heaven and he sits now at the right hand of God on his throne, ruling and waiting for the day that he will come a second time to reestablish his kingdom and to bring all of those who have placed their faith in him with him. That is the gospel. That is the good news that all who have placed their faith in him will one day see him and all others who have placed their faith in him. That's the family of God. Friends, if you don't know him, I pray that you would ask, you would come and seek help to know this Christ Jesus. There is no other. All else is false. This alone is truth. The truth of salvation is alone in Christ Jesus. But it means that as a believer, we shouldn't grow in our understanding of the truth. We may not have to be scholars to receive Christ, but Christ does not save us to keep us where we are. He intends to grow us and to change us and to keep us as God and through the Holy Spirit being conformed to the image of His Son. And so the truth of sound doctrine is a crucial matter. The main difference between the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and all of those who are not saved and those who are truly saved centers on the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. When John talks about some of the children walking in truth, John had opportunities to run into some of those members and he witnessed their lifestyle, which is a lesson for us. If we're walking in the truth, does our lifestyle reflect? John says that he had great joy to see that there were those who were still walking in truth. And you have to wonder, what were they doing that John witnessed that they were walking in truth? Were they on vacation? Did they go for a business trip? Were they just trying to visit relatives? But their testimony so confirmed their truth in Christ that John praised and wrote commendations of their demeanor. Which helps us understand that it's not simply what we know we must know the truth, but we also must walk by that truth. We must live out that truth. We must be able to bring forth the Christ that is in the pages, not only into our lives to transform us for the joy of God, but so that God might use our testimony to demonstrate Christ. And as folks see our lives, do they say 
Susie, I saw in the marketplace. I was at work, and the first thing that came to mind is, what a saint. What a way of dealing with whatever was going on. We have children. We have families. And training up the children and the families, are they reflective of being instructed by the truth so that they walk by truth. When we're at work, do people find it or do we find it comforting that people know that we are Christ and that we not only know of him, we know him and delight in sharing whenever we can to live our lives with not the scope of my boss on me, but with the love of my heavenly father on me and therefore, I act accordingly. I have to say that I, I get so proud at times because I have seen the fruit of a church that has trained up their children to be so respectful of the truths of Scripture. I'll always remember, I won't name names, but it's comforting when you become a bit older, and some of the younger ones become a bit older. And when you see them in public, they come up to you, they greet you, they shake your hand firm, they talk, they delight. As family, it's a, it's a praise to you as parents. Continue the good work. It's not easy but continue the good work that helps children grow with a faint understanding of what it means to be Christ, to becoming adults who firmly can affirm their faith in Christ, and they walk by it so that when we get opportunities to even see them and we delight, what must the world think? And how do we encourage them that when the world discourages them for the way that they are, they can be emboldened to still stand for the humble truth of Christ Jesus. That's our church. And I pray we continue to be that type of church because we are strongly committed to fortifying ourselves with the truth of God so that we can live out that. Amen? Well, if we then are going to be, and as John is bringing, that we are covered in the knowledge of truth and that he has called then, he's encouraged them to walk in this truth. Let that be known. He then gives us this commandment, third command, and that is to love one another. We are covered in the knowledge of truth. We are called to walk in truth. And the third encouragement is that we are commanded to love one another. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. You see, the life of the church expresses itself in love. John is concerned about truth and love. 
He uses it four times. In six verses, truth and love just simply can't be separated. From Pastor Zach having done the First John series, if you ever get a chance, if you get a chance, go back and listen to that wonderful series to help us understand John walking us through the challenges that face us as a church. And in that, John keeps giving out these tests that we can affirm our faith with, that we know that we're in the body of Christ, and that centers around believing the truth about Jesus Christ, loving one another, and obeying God's command. He continues with that same teaching here in 2 John, that we're to walk according to his commandments. And these commandments involve truth in verse 4 and love in verses 5 and 6. And it's been from the beginning. I believe he speaks this um, fact coming from Jesus Christ himself. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It wasn't new to the disciples, as Jesus was saying. The Old Testament said to love one another. But the new command was coming from Jesus God himself. He was affirming it, and he was showing that, yes, that's what the commandment said, but you didn't get it right. You didn't love the way I loved you. In fact, you revolted against me. You rebelled against me. And you treated one another poorly. So God came in the flesh to demonstrate this love for us, to help us know what godly love looks like. And as Jesus said to the disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, for the two are one. And so as Jesus fulfills love, we then get the demonstration of what true love looks like when we love one another. John points to this new command text. If we're inhabited and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, then we are to walk in the Spirit. And we are to walk in love. Galatians 5 says, 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Romans 5.5, 5. God love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have the love of God in our hearts to be able to carry out this new commandment. From the beginning, Jesus taught us to love one another. But here's the problem. Even as Christians, we think of love as an emotional thing. We think of a being religious feeling that somehow, supernaturally, God enables us to reach out and accept other people simply by us having it in our hearts as an affection. Now, emotion is a part of love. There is no doubting that. And there is a strong emotional aspect of that. But essential, 
Love is defined in the scriptures is not emotional in essence. In fact, it is of the will. It's an act of the will. It is to determine. It is to have the attitude to treat other people the way God treats you. Church, do we do that? Do you do that? If a harsh treatment goes on among God's people, are you deeply hurt because of the way we've been treated? And then we, do we take that to heart and then find ourselves unable to love others? And admittedly, there is a lot of harsh treatment in the church. We find some of our greatest hurts come from those whom we share some of the most intimate relationships with through Christ. And we have to ask, why is that? How do we change that? God commands us to love one another, to do it no matter the problems we have about it, we have to do it. We have committed ourselves to being that way. I love what we do when we see in our country those taking an oath of office. Listen to what they say when you take an oath of office. To be part of an organization and to be part of uh, our government in a various capacities, this oath is recited. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that we will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me, God. We know what is required in order to be part and to serve in a capacity above ourselves. God has called us into that type of a relationship, and that's the covenant that we have taken one together when we have come into the body of Christ. Sometimes we need that reminder that this is the same oath that we have made. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the commandment given by Jesus to love one another against all enemies, foreign and domestic, physical and spiritually through prayer, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of children in the family of God on which I am about to enter. So help me, God. That's a rearrangement of words. But church, that's what we have all done. We have made a covenant with Christ. We are bonded together as family, and we are to love one another such that we even sacrifice ourselves for one another. 
There shouldn't be things that come in from the outside that will cause us to sacrifice one for our own benefit, but that we willfully support and defend one another against all foreign or domestic threats to our church. We're there together. That's what it means to love one another. We take the essentials of the gospel. They must be the basis for our fellowship and unity. If anyone denies the essentials of the gospel, he's not a Christian. We have no basis for true fellowship. And that gets brought out in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring the teaching, do not receive him. If someone's promoting false teachings, we're not to welcome them. So our love for others, it must be discerning. We must be shrewd and we must be diligent to apply Scripture faithfully. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. You see, if you love someone, you delight to please them. If you love Christ, you'll keep His commandments. Remember He said in John 15, verse 10, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, even as I have kept My Father's commandments, and abide in His love. John chapter 5 and 1 John, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Friends, at times we have to understand that in order to follow God, we do need to follow in His commandments. That is the essence of love. It's not at, not at this point where I feel like the commandments I feel like following them. Sometimes I actually grow weary. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I'm not the most lovable guy as much as I might like to think I am, as much as I know my wife thinks of me. But I know that there's, honey, you know I'm joking. But I know that there are times when we're just not the most lovable people. And there are folks that are genuinely hard to battle with because they're battling against us. But we have to draw upon not our own strength, but the truth that is in us and abides with us to be able to overcome that enemy, even our own flesh. And John is affirming with them that this is the love that they are to walk by. This is the obedience to Scripture. And when I find myself in a drought, even when I'm upset sometimes with God, because I can, we can be upset with God, how do we get back this love for Him? We just grow weary. We go dry. Sometimes we have to go back to His promises and hear the words spoken back to us. When God says, what can separate us from the love of God? That strengthens my heart. 
Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That reassures my heart about God. The Lord himself goes before you and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. That is our God. You see, sometimes we must go back and we must drown ourselves in scriptures so that the vitality, the vibrance, and the beauty of God becomes crystal clear, comes right back to the front, and energizes us in the spirit to, be, to continue loving one another. Loving God and loving others. Church, this is what we've been called to do. This is the help that John has given that early church. He helps them understand their plight. He encourages them. Next time we get an opportunity, we will continue understanding that even as John has given them an understanding of what it means to be covered in the knowledge of truth, to be called to walk in truth, and commanded to love one another, that they'll need all of that in order to confront the false teachers and to keep the unity of the body together rather than give over themselves to the wolves that are trying to come in and divide them, devour them, break apart their faith, diminish their faith, and leave them helpless. The next time we have an opportunity, we will cover how then to work against those deceivers. But we're thankful for God for this encouragement, and we're thankful that He has given us comfort in Christ, comfort in the truth, and that he has rested our hearts. I pray today that he abounds in us, for us, with us. And that his truth in Christ is what keeps us grounded and keeps us moving forward and keeps our hope alive. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the truth that is Christ. We thank you, Father, that the new command that you have given us is not burdensome to love one another because, Father, you first demonstrated how that is done. Because, Father, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You further demonstrate that love that while we were still sinners Christ died for us Father help us to remember this help us to live out these truths and I Father I pray that anyone who does not know Christ Jesus would accept this in their hearts and would come and find him because Lord he is right there waiting to be received knocking at the door asking would you accept him and would you let him in that he may dine and sup with you? Father, we lift all of these things and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.